Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you here today, and uh, we're trucking along through um, this shorter series, about seven weeks, uh, called Courageous Church. This uh, series is based on the book of Daniel. We're not going to go all the way through the book of Daniel, but we're going to cover some of the, uh, the key parts of the book of Daniel. And uh, through the series, one of the things we're talking about is how Christians can have courage to stand strong for Christ in changing times, all right? So uh, Daniel is a good model for this because his time was like our time. We looked at this last week. His time was similar to our time. He was a man of God, but he was living in exile. He was living in this uh, hostile culture. And yet God used him to engage his culture. Uh, He had the courage to take a risk to speak truth to a tyrant. And that's what we're going to look at today. So Nebuchadnezzar was the king in Babylon uh, in our story today. He had total authority, and his evil impulses were kept in check by what Daniel had did, by a truthful man. But, but Daniel, he was a slave in exile. That was his starting point. <clears throat> Excuse me. But Daniel didn't have any authority, right? He was a slave. But through his courage, he did rise in prominence, and Nebuchadnezzar ended up placing him as a ruler in the land. So today we're going to look at Daniel's example and uh, how Christians can engage culture with how we relate to authority. Engaging culture with how we relate to authority. Let's dig in. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. And we'll go through the whole story here. Starting at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation." The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words. Note that. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me, till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream. And I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. 
So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Pause here for just a second. God had revealed something to this pagan king. God spoken something to this pagan king in a dream, but he needed a man of God to reveal the interpretation of the dream, right? This story is, is reminiscent of Joseph in Egypt. You might remember that's how he rose to prominence, but it's got a twist. In this instance, the king demands that the person read his mind and tell him the dream before he reveals the interpretation. So, I mean, it's, it's an absurd thing. He's saying, essentially, read my mind or die. I mean, nobody can do that. And, of course, their response is appropriate. It's like, nobody can do that. No man on earth can do that. Only God can do that, or the gods in their instance. So Nebuchadnezzar was prepared to slaughter all the wise men and the magicians. And he was angry. Verse 9 is important. He was angry because he thought they were lying. He's like, I need the truth. I need somebody to speak to me the truth, and you guys are trying to buy time by speaking lying and corrupt words. I need the truth, and I need somebody to reveal the truth to me. And they were all right, and that only God could reveal that truth. They didn't know who the God was, but they knew that this truth that he's looking for must come from outside of themselves. Verse 14, let's keep moving. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Make note of that. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the, king, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to them, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to them, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Pause here again. So Daniel promises him honesty. Nebuchadnezzar was this bloodthirsty tyrant bent on killing all the wise men and all those guys. But he wanted the truth, and Daniel promised to give it to him. Daniel was respectful. So we see a couple things here. Daniel replied, verse 14, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. So he was respectful to the authority, and he was courteous. So he made a request, which is kind of funny, right? Because he's like, you know, excuse me, if if you don't mind, I request that you not slaughter me. Uh, You know, if it's okay, uh, I'd rather live. So tell you what, I'll make known to you the dream. And it's like he's requesting his own life. He's respectful of authority. This is important because it shows us that Daniel always respected the office of authority, even when he didn't respect the occupant. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 31, Daniel speaking, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Now, I want to skip down. We're not going to read all of the prophecy and the, or the, the vision of the dream. But basically, he saw a great image that had prophetic meaning. And the meaning is simply that there's going to be a series of kingdoms that will come after Nebuchadnezzar, ending in an eternal kingdom. So let's skip down to verse 44, and we'll get the response. Verse 44, finishing up uh, Daniel's speech here. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Now get this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar bloodthirsty tyrant, King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar gave glory to God. He acknowledged the supremacy of Daniel's God over all the pagan gods of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar honored and promoted Daniel to a place of prominence. He actually bowed down to him and offered incense to him. And then he made Daniel and his friends rulers in the land. So Daniel went from a man who was an exiled servant with no authority to becoming a prominent leader, having great authority in the king's court. 
That's her story. I want to make seven points on this story. Seven points about this story about how we relate to authority. So it's a bit of a theology of authority from this story that I'm giving you here. First point, God has all authority over all nations and cultures. God has all authority over all nations and cultures. We see this revealed and acknowledged in Nebuchadnezzar's words. Verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar said, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All authority. So when, when Jesus said, this, this is the Great Commission, right? It's our call to engage culture with the gospel. And Jesus calls his people to make disciples of all nations. So Christians engage culture in light of his authority. We engage culture in light of Jesus' ultimate authority, his victory over death and sin, and in light of his authority over the cultures that we are engaging. So Jesus is all authority. And, and another thing, whenever Jesus says make disciples of all nations, we tend to think of that as make disciples of all the individuals within every nation. But I think we would be missing something if we did not also acknowledge that what Jesus said was make disciples of all nations. So there is a discipleship aspect to the nations themselves. So the church essentially has a discipleship role within a culture, within a nation. We do this by speaking God's truth to individuals and to the nation and to the culture. And since Christ is victorious and he has all authority, then we can do so fearlessly. We're not on the losing side. We're on the winning side. Jesus has all authority. That's point number one. All right, point number two. God delegates authority within limited domains. God delegates authority within limited domains. So taking the first point, all authority belongs to God. He is the author, implied by the word authority. He is the author, the creator. God has all authority. But then he delegates a measure of his authority to uh, humans to, to operate within a limited domain. And all authority then is ultimately accountable back to God for their use of it. So Daniel said this, look at this, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 36, Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold, and then he goes on to interpret the dream. So God's authority has been delegated to this wicked pagan king. Now, he's accountable to God for his use of it, but it, he has a real authority. So only God has absolute authority. Human authority is derived from it, and it's limited to specific domains. So authority always has two directions, over and under. Authority always has the directions of over and under. So everyone in authority is also under authority. Even the, the highest, most powerful person in the world is ultimately under the authority of God and will answer to God for their use of authority. But for everybody else, we're always in authority and we're under authority. And that's how it works. The, the, God's ordered world is hierarchical because authority is part of his pattern of creation. Jesus said this. Now, again, this is fascinating. Jesus said this in John 19, 11. Pilate is talking to him 
And Pilate's like, don't you know I've got the authority to kill you? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Which ironically, Jesus gave him the authority that he had to kill him. So there are these uh, domains of authority. Um, Abraham Kuyper, um, Dutch theologian, long since dead, but he uh, developed this uh, concept of spheres, uh, spheres of authority. And uh, he identified three public spheres of authority that um, God has ordained. That's the home, the church, and the state. The home, the church, and the state, three spheres of authority. The, the authority overlaps. So uh, no domain has ultimate authority, but there's, it's, I mean, it's biblically speaking, a system of checks and balances on human authority. And uh, so there's the, um, the state has the instrument of the sword. So they execute justice with the sword. You know, they have the uh, use of force. The church has the keys. So the state sword, that's Romans 13. The church has the keys. That's Matthew 16. Jesus says, to you, I give the keys of the kingdom. To the home, he gives the rod, which is like a, an instrument of discipline where, where the, uh, the authority in the home with parents raising their children. That's Proverbs 13. So these authorities overlap, and there's boundaries between each of these authorities that intersect, but the boundaries need to be respected, right? So there's legitimate authority that, that is, resides in each of these spheres, each of these domains that overlap, but the boundaries between them need to be respected so that no authority is, can become uh, uh, tyrannical. You see this in Israel in the Old Testament between the king and the priesthood. There's lots of examples of this, but that's the basic pattern. Here's point number three. God requires Christians to submit to lawful authority. God requires Christians to submit to lawful authority. Now, I said this already. Christians are called to submit to the office of authority even if we don't respect the occupant. So you may not like who's president. You may not like who was president. You may not like who's on city council. You may not like your boss. Nevertheless, the authority of God resides in the office. So whenever you're submitting to the authority, you're submitting to God as represented by the office, not necessarily by the individual. So if you, if you, if you had to always respect and like and want to submit to the individual, then authority wouldn't work because we're all rebellious at heart. So whenever we're submitting to authority, we're doing so because we're submitting to God. Romans 13 is a great place to look at this. So let me read to you this. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So Romans 13 is a text that Paul makes a point about a governing authority, but he applies a broader principle of all authority being derived from God, which we see throughout Scripture. So Romans 13, the government has legitimate authority, right? But, as I said, the home also has legitimate authority. So there's a boundary between the government's authority and the home's authority. Both have legitimate authority, and the church has a legitimate authority, because there's the elders of a church have authority there. Each of these are different domains, and that authority needs to be respected between one domain and the other. 
So the husband, as the head of his home, has a legitimate authority in the way that the home is ordered. And the elders of a church have a legitimate authority in the way the church is ordered. So what Romans 13 is talking about is the normal, proper use of government authority and the Christian duty to submit to, to submit to the government as it is exercising that authority appropriately. Romans 13 does not teach that the government has absolute authority because it's not the only authority around. There are other authorities that also exist and must also be respected. Government authority is limited to the domain that has been assigned by God. So the government does not have authority, uh, at least not absolute authority, but the government cannot tell you who to marry, how to educate your kids, or what to inject in your body. That's not the right of government. The government doesn't have that authority. So sometimes an authority will go too far such that it violates a person's conscience or would even lead them into sin. And in those instances, the authority must be resisted. Romans 13 does not exclude that. Romans 13 is referring to the normative use of authority. But whenever authority becomes tyrannical and overreaches its domain, then it must be resisted. And we need no, look no further than the rest of the book of Daniel to see that. We'll see this, you know, as we go on through this series, but there's times when the uh, people of God are required to um, bow down to a golden Im image. They resisted that authority. He got thrown into a fiery furnace. Daniel, later on, there was a decree that he couldn't pray, and he did it anyway. He resisted authority. They threw him in a lion's den. So the government authority is not absolute because there are times whenever the authority would violate the conscience of an individual or lead them to sin, and they resist that authority. But in the government's lawful domain... We must always submit to government authority, but that does not mean an absolute authority. So in our day, um, we've seen examples where many government authorities have used the pandemic to accrue more power, and this is a power that they'll never relinquish. And that's, a, that's concerning, right? That's a dangerous thing. They've used their God-given authority improperly and have become authoritarian and tyrannical, and they do that under the auspices of an emergency. Now, government leaders aren't stupid. If an emergency can authorize tyranny, then we can expect to be seeing a lot more emergencies. And some Christians have been enablers for this, and they'll use Romans 13 as a bludgeon, as though whatever the government says, you must submit to the government, as though that, the government's authority is absolute. But it isn't. The government's authority is limited. It's a real, legitimate authority that must be submitted to, but it's a limited authority. So Romans 13 does not require Christians to submit to the government in everything, but in the areas that are its proper domain. Nevertheless, Christians always need to show respect for the office of authority, even if they're resisting it, and even if they don't respect the occupant of it. And so we don't need to look any further back than the last few years than to know that regardless if it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden, where there's Christians all over the place of both sides that have spoken um, sinfully about people in positions of authority. And, you know, there's been jokes and that sort of thing where they've, they've, they've disregarded a, a, an authority that God has instituted. So what we see in Daniel is he's always respectful. To this bloodthirsty tyrant, he's still respectful. And that's a lesson Christians can learn. Point number four. God calls Christians to exercise godly authority. God calls Christians to exercise godly authority. 
So this story shows us how Daniel was elevated to a position of authority in the Babylonian Empire. And this is a good thing. You know, if you're an ancient Jew reading this story, you're cheering and clapping because your guy just got elevated to a position of prominence demonstrating the superiority of their God. This is a good thing. And the expectation is that being in authority is not just a figurehead, not just a placeholder, but that's actually the rule of God being represented in a legitimate way within a pagan government. And so they're cheering, clapping, excited because this is a good development. Daniel was a godly man, and he ended up using his authority courageously to save lives. Not only his own lives and him and his buddies, but to save the lives of the magicians and the wise men and the Babylonians. He exercised godly rule within a domain that God had delegated to him. And we see this as a pattern in Scripture where God often delivers his people by giving one of them a position of power or authority or influence. Go back to the book of Genesis, we see this, uh, chapter 37, and the story that follows with Joseph. Joseph rose to prominence in Egypt and went from being sold into slavery by his brothers. But he rose to power and prominence in Egypt, and God used him in that position of authority to bring about redemption and deliverance. He fed the whole nation and his own family. The next book, Exodus. Hundreds of years later, whenever there was a wicked Pharaoh in power, Moses ended up being raised by Pharaoh because he was found in the reed bushes because Pharaoh was killing the Hebrew baby boys and put him in a basket. You, you know, if you don't know the story, read it. Beginning of Exodus. But Moses ended up going from being this Hebrew baby child uh, being protected for his life to being brought into Pharaoh's house by Pharaoh's daughter and raised within Pharaoh's house and ended up using that position of prominence and authority as Pharaoh's adopted son and that was a place of access, and God gave him access to Pharaoh to deliver his people and deliver the plagues and so on. It was his position of authority. Another good example of this is Queen Esther. Now, Queen Esther, this is the same time period as Daniel. It's this time period of exile. So Queen Esther was chosen to be the king's wife. And so she was in this position to influence the king to save God's people whenever Haman, wicked Haman, was going to have all the Jews slaughtered. I mean, it's like the Jews are always being threatened in the Bible, and God always puts people in a position of power to, to save them. Now, there's this interesting line in the book of Esther when she's like, I don't know about this. She's nervous. She's afraid. She's rightly afraid because the tradition is that she doesn't just waltz into the king, even though she's his wife. She didn't just waltz in there and be like, hey, king, I don't do this. It's dumb. No, that would, he could kill her. So it was a very dangerous thing for her to go in uninvited and ask the king to deliver the people. And so her uncle Mordecai is, you know, talking with her about this. And then here's what he tells Esther. This is Esther chapter 4, verse 12. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's a great rhetorical question. Esther, don't you know that God has put you in this position of influence for this reason? For this moment, to take a risk, to put your life on the line, to do good, to save other people, to bring about redemption. So I, I said this last week, 
But we need more Christianity in the public square, not less. Because Christianity is good for the public. Christianity is good for society. We need more Christians in positions of leadership and authority demonstrating and exercising godly rule, godly leadership in our society. So it's a good thing when godly Christian disciples exercise dominion in society. It's the creation mandate, Genesis 1, um, where, where God said, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the world. I mean, that's, that is a, a modern application of this. I, uh, I have a friend who's a fellow pastor with Acts 29, uh, church planner. Um, he's not a local guy. He's um, another part of the state. But, um, but this guy, his church meets in a school. And through building relationships with people in the school, um, they, some of the people in the school really liked him. They took to him. And he was encouraged to run for the school board. And so he's, he you know, thought about it, prayed about it. And uh, he ended up running for school board and ended up getting elected, uh, you know, the top vote getter in that district. And, and, and they did that because, like, hey, you're the kind of guy that we would like to have exercise authority over us. We would like your leadership. And this man's a pastor, right? So it was like a volunteer type of deal. But that's, that's what we're talking about. A Christian being in a position of authority to influence, to, to, to even uh, exercise authority with, by telling people what to do or whatever. By, but it's, it's a matter of, of, of exercising godly dominion in a way that is for the good of other people. All right, point number five. Godly authority leads to human flourishing. Godly authority leads to human flourishing. So no surprise here. We live in a day of widespread distrust of authority. We might even say despising of authority. Especially if it's institutional authority. I mean, institutional authority, that's like the worst. That's, that's got to be abusive, just because it's institutional. It's got to be abusive. And so authority is seen as this, as this cancer on society, a toxic, corrosive agent that, that harms people. And, you know, you know the, the saying, we've heard it millions of times, like, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've heard this. Well, if that's true, then Jesus Christ is the devil, the most corrupt being ever because he has all authority. Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. So that can't be right. Authority can't be this corrosive agent that it's made out to be. It's a temptation, but it can't be evil in itself as it's often regarded to be. Authority itself is a good thing. It's, 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 a, it's a godly thing. But like any good thing, it can be corrupted and it can become evil and abusive well, the secular answer is, is to fear it and deny it and, and be afraid of it. And, you know, they'll say, it's like we talked about this last week. It's like, well, you'll, you'll just become an authority unto yourself. You know, follow your truth. Live your truth. It's like it's a, it, it becomes this, this um, what's the word? Just this cliche where it's like, I'm not going to listen to any authority. I'm going to resist authority. You know, that's the, the, you know, the idea of the, you know, the, the modern anarchist, whatever. But authority is a good thing. The biblical answer is to redeem authority, to, to exercise it in a godly way, not overthrow it. I mean, that's chaos. We can't just overthrow authority. We have to use it in a godly way. Now, let me read you a text, and this text will probably, probably never heard authority spoken of this way that we'll see in this text. Listen to this. 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken, 
the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. The sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Have you ever heard authority spoken of that way? Like authority spoken of in a, in a truly positive way. It's like, oh man, good authority, a good president is like, like it makes the morning dawn. It's like dew on the grass. It sounds like a love poem. It's like, but the Bible regards authority that way because authority is needed, but it needs to be godly authority for it to have that effect. And so he says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, recognizing that he's under God's authority and accountable to God for that authority, that kind of authority is a blessing to society. The best antidote to wicked or corrupt authority is godly authority, humble authority, authority that operates in the fear of God, that punishes evil and promotes good. That kind of authority is a blessing. So let's say you got this bully on a playground, you know, beating up little kids, stealing their lunch money or whatever, their milk money. Um, what, what, what does the little kid need in that situation that's getting beat up? You know, he's, he's a little guy. He, he's no recourse, right? I mean, he's, he needs a stronger authority to come and bring justice to the situation. And that's what the teachers do. You know, a good teacher would come and, and rectify the situation, discipline the bully kid. That's a good use of authority. That's why God gives us authority, is as a restraint of evil and as a protection for those that are under that authority. So wherever God has placed you, whatever domain God has given you, exercise your authority to make it better. So if you're, let's say your primary domain is the home. It might not feel like you've got a lot of power, but no, it's like there, there's incredible power. You have, a, you have power over the lives that God has entrusted to you. So turn your home into a sanctuary. Turn it into a, a factory of disciple making. Turn your home into a place of love and hospitality and grace. Like that's an authority that God has given you to author something, to create something beautiful within your domain. If you're a supervisor at work, use your authority to protect those that are under you who need protection, who don't have the ability to defend themselves and help them to work better. And that leads me to point number six. Authority needs to be spent, not saved. Authority needs to be spent, not saved. So it's a little uh, economic lesson here. Be a spender, not a saver when it comes to authority. Some of you are in positions of authority and the people that are under you are depending on you for protection, or for some measure of justice, for fairness. But that's, that's what your authority is given for. And sometimes people that are in positions of power and authority are unwilling to risk it, to do something good because they don't want to lose it. The authority becomes an end in itself. And we see this all the time in politics. So it's a big complaint that everybody has, where you have this politician that'll make a big promise to get elected, but they won't follow through with the promise and he doesn't follow through because he needs to get reelected. And so he uses his power to get reelected, not for the end for which he was uh, elected in the first place. Now, this can happen um, not just in politics, but this can happen in businesses and other organizations too. So let me give you this example. Suppose you're, um, you work for this big company, Acme Manufacturing, we'll call it. 
Acme Manufacturing, and you're on the board of directors, right? So you've got a lot of authority as a board of directors of Acme Manufacturing, but there's a financial crisis, and so the board of directors is working through how do we resolve this financial crisis? Well, there's a clever proposal that somebody put on the table, and the proposal goes like this. Let's cut our overall expenses by 10%, and we'll do it in these two ways. First, we'll cut our budget by 15% to lay off staff. Second, we'll give ourselves a 5% pay raise uh, to, to reward ourselves for our brilliant answer. <laughs> 10%, bingo. We've saved the company 10%. Now, you're on the board, right? And you're the only board member who's convinced that this is actually wrong and unjust. You're, you're going to be paying yourselves more in a time of a financial crisis and people be, be getting cut off in the process. So how do you reason this? Well, if you raise an objection, the other members of the board might get angry with you because they want the pay raise. And, but if you keep quiet, too, you'll get more money. And so that's a temptation because you've got a shopping list. It's Christmas or whatever. Birthday's coming up. You want a boat. <laughs> but something's around the corner, and you would like the money, and you're starting to spend it in your mind. If you take a stand, then you're acting alone, speaking a true thing into an environment that may be painful for you. You might jeopardize your seat on the board, and then you would lose your position of authority. And so there's a gamble. It's like, well, if I, if I spend my authority here, then I could lose it all. And so what you decide is, well, I'd better stay quiet, so that way I can keep my authority in case something important comes along where I really need it. And what you miss is that this is that important thing. And this is where that authority is needed, and you're saving it rather than spending it. God gave you that authority to be spent, to be used, to be exercised in ways that promote good in the for the people that are under your authority, and you're choosing not to use it in that way. This could be the important thing. It's like if you've got Esther's uncle, Mordecai, in your ear. He's like, what if God appointed you for such a time as this? And for certainly, it, it might cost you something. You might lose your position. People might get angry with you. But doesn't Jesus expect us to tell us to expect that discipleship will come at a cost? That's what Daniel did. Daniel ended up in a position of power in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years. And that, that includes the den of lions thing. And that includes the fire, fiery furnace thing. It's like he wasn't just kind of sitting in this position of prominence and not using it. It's like he was actively using his authority for the good of people. Even when it was risky to do so, he put his power and authority on the line to do what is right. Last point, number seven. Christians can disciple the nations by speaking truth. Christians can disciple the nations by speaking truth. It might be lost on us just how courageous Daniel needed to be in this situation. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had just threatened to wipe out all the wise men for not being able to read his mind. I mean, the dude's a lunatic. And so Daniel's going to go in there and kind of place himself, you know, right between Nebuchadnezzar and all the people that he's wanting to kill and say, I've got a word for you. I've got something that I want to say to you. And that's what he does. He goes into the king and calmly speaks the truth to him. And that proves Daniel's worthiness 
to be trusted with greater authority. Nebuchadnezzar saw it. He's like, this is a guy that's honest. I can trust this guy because he told me exactly uh, what told me exactly what was on his mind. And then verse 47, we've already read this. Before verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. It, was, it brought honor to Daniel's God whenever Daniel spoke truth. It would seem like a simple thing, speaking the truth. It might seem like a benign point, but in our day, it's actually a very difficult point because speaking the truth is a very dangerous thing. Honesty is the currency of trust. God is honored whenever we speak truth, and our nation desperately needs it. We want to engage our culture, and we have to engage our culture with things that are true, right? Even if the rest of the world is given over to lies, Christians need to live and to believe the truth. It's, it's a simple thing, but it's not an easy thing. And there isn't a clearer example of this in our moment, our day, and as in the transgender issue, transgender movement. It's taken off like a rocket, right? I mean, in, in a very short period of time, and short period of time, I mean like five years, six years or so, it's taken off. To where our whole society has been bullied into believing this lie that biological gender is meaningless. And not only accepting the lie, but participating in it, and sometimes even promoting it instead of the truth, such that that has become the expectation of everyone. And to be the one that says, you know, I'm not convinced, well, that person is now in trouble. They're in hot water. So you might have seen news stories the last few weeks. You have this, this guy who's a biological male, but he is swimming with a women's team because he's transgender. So he's competing as a transgender female, and, I mean, he's crushing the competition, and it's not even close. It's like he is just literally blowing the records out of the water. It's like this guy is, is insane just how great he is as a swimmer. And the women that are on his team and that he's competing with, they're frustrated by this, rightly, because they're like, we're swimming against a dude <laughs> who is physically superior in, in ways that men are just designed to be physically larger and stronger and faster. And so, like, this isn't fair, but we can't say anything about it. And so these women have, they're uh, cited in news stories, like, we can't say anything about this publicly for fear of a backlash. We'll be called a bigot and that sort of thing. Here's my question. Why doesn't someone in a position of authority protect these women from injustices like these? These women who are having their accomplishments erased by someone who isn't a biological woman. And of course, we know the answer, don't we? We know the answer is that whoever speaks the truth will risk having their career and their reputation ruined. And so they're afraid. They don't want to take that risk. Why would they? It's much easier to go home at night and kiss your, kid, kiss your kids goodnight and live your life. But all you need to do is just participate in this lie. Let's say a school administrator or you know, college president or whatever. It's like uh, NCAA, whoever it is. It's like somebody in a position of authority has got to see that this is an unjust thing. But nobody is willing to risk their career, their reputation, their income to speak truth. And those, that, those rare instances where they do, they pay a steep penalty for it. 
So the question really is, is anyone willing to take that risk? Because anyone with enough courage to speak the truth is going to find themselves in hot water. World Magazine, uh, they did a write-up about this last week, uh, about J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter, Harry Potter author. Um, she's, she's a feminist, right? I mean, she's not some right-winger. She's a feminist. But she's like, I'm, I'm going to speak to the reality of biological gender. And so whenever Harry Potter movies and actors and so on, they had their 20-year anniversary, she wasn't invited. The author of the books wasn't invited because she's uh, controversial. She's a lightning rod. Now, let me read you the money line from this article in World Magazine. This is, if the author of Harry Potter can see and speak what is plain about biological reality, why can't Christians who possess God's full revelation do the same? It's a great question. Now, for most of us, it's more likely to hit home, not in, a, in, in an issue like that, but probably something like a diversity and equity and inclusion initiative at work, where you have to uh, say, well, this is so-and-so's pronouns, and you have to speak to this person according to these pronouns. And you're like, there's men and there's women. There's not all these spectrum of genders. So it's like, how do I do that? How do I do that as a Christian? And I'm not here to tell you how to do that, but I'm here to tell you that that is a serious issue to grapple with, and you must never lie. That's one thing we can do is lie or participate in a lie. So sooner or later, each of us, and this is, I'm predicting the future a bit, but I think I'll be proven true. (laughs) Each of us are going to have to deal with this sooner or later, to where you'll have to decide, at what point do I resist or do I just assimilate into the culture and do do what I'm told? Be a sheep and just do what I'm told. What's your resistance? At what point will you decide, I can't go along to this point? I can't can't do that. I can't live a lie. I can't promote and propagate a lie that isn't loving or good for people. We're all going to face our Daniel moment sooner or later. Some of you are in a position of authority, and you have people under you that this is very troubling for them but they know that they would get crushed if they said anything. But you might have authority. You might have enough authority to weather the storm for the sake of those that are under your authority, and they need your protection. Now, I'm I'm, I'm speaking to us here as a church. Society-wide, if enough people decided we're not going to do this, then that would be serious pushback, and we might see change in the opposite direction. But it can't happen when everybody is participating in the lie. There has to be some willingness for Christians to say, you know what, this might cost me. This might cost me dearly, but I would rather have a clean conscience and tell the truth than have my conscience defiled and lie and keep my job or keep my reputation. I would rather be called a bigot with a clean conscience than be called uh, enlightened and progressive and Uh, wonderful and loving, whatever, and tell a lie. We're all going to have to face our Daniel moment. You may have already faced it. Maybe you're facing it right now, but we're all going to have to face this. And we're going to have to decide, like Peter and the apostles did in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than man. You have to be at that point. George Orwell, uh, he made this famous statement, in a time of deceit, 
Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. My friends, we live in a time of deceit. So we want to engage culture, right? We, we, we want to engage our culture, absolutely. But we have to engage culture with what is true. We can't engage culture with lies. We have to, engage, we have to, we have to at least let our starting point be the truth. Let me read you Ephesians 4, 25. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So Christians, we have to live in reality as it is and as God created it to be. Now, some of you might feel nervous talking about these things, and I get that. I get that. You know, it's, it's controversial, right? And this is the point where we need to be clear that we can't engage culture if we're accommodating its lies. Like, we want to reach people with the gospel. We want to see people give their lives to Christ to be transformed. So engaging the culture is by, we do this by speaking the truth and confronting its idols and providing a clear alternative in the gospel. And here's the secret. Here's a little secret you may not know. Hardly anyone actually believes this stuff. Everybody's going along because they're terrified. And of course, nobody wants to lose their job or have their career or reputation ruined. But in their heart of hearts, nobody actually believes this stuff. We're going along with it because we're afraid. And this is where Christians need to stand out because we know the God who reveals mysteries. We know the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He's with us. We're on the winning side because Jesus has all authority. And so ultimately, we might pay a cost short term, but long term, we know that Christ is victorious. So we need the courage of Daniel to, to, to stand strong. You might find that the most evangelistic thing you can do is to speak and to live with the truth. Maybe you have non-Christian friends and family who will be encouraged to know that there's still some sanity left in the world. Maybe they'll be drawn to it and want to be part of it and want to know the God of all sanity and truth. And maybe speaking and living the truth will open the door for the gospel and you'll get to introduce people to Jesus, the God who is the revealer of all mysteries, who can bring order to our world with his ultimate authority. I know I've gone long. Thanks for your patience. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we, we, uh, we live in deceptive times, and we need, uh, we need your truth to pierce through, and to, um, we need your strength to live and to speak the truth. We need courage, and you give it to us. Give us the faith to believe that you have all authority. And that we are, we are your humble servants. Help us to, to see Daniel and to see in the book of Daniel patterns and examples to follow. And Lord, we acknowledge that it, it, it's a scary thing to stand for truth. And we can, we can acknowledge that, Lord, while also acknowledging the fact that we sometimes we're put in a position where we have no alternative but to take that risk. And so, God, this is where we need wisdom of your spirit to help each of us determine what do we do as we face these problems and to be prepared for them and to not be caught off guard, but to prepare for them. And so I pray over our city group conversations and 
conversation in the ride home today and uh, other, other dialogue, Lord. Help us to, help us to learn um, and to share wisdom with one another what, what, we all, what we each need to do. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.